0: Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting, and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, I'm Henry Sutton, and today on The Culture Bar, as we continue our Under the Spotlight series, we'll be discussing contested heritage. To explore this, I'm delighted to be joined by Corin Fowler, Professor of Postcolonial Literature at the University of Leicester, who is also Director of the Colonial Countryside National Trust Houses Reinterpreted Projects, and Ed Vasey, member of the House of Lords, who served as Culture Minister from 2010 to 2016, and of course, he's the co-host of his own podcast, Breakout Culture. It's great to have you both with us. Welcome. Thanks, Henry. Hello. Nice to be here. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, well, this is a very pertinent topic. Uh, in February, Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden met with 25 leaders of English heritage organisations including the likes of the National Trust, Historic England, the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England, the British Museum and the Imperial War Museum, all to discuss contested heritage. So I'm going to come first to our resident professor, Corim, can you just tell us what is contested heritage?
1: I think it's an interesting term in itself actually because it makes you wonder what, what is it we're contesting are we contesting uh, the, our involvement with slavery? Um, are we, do we mean difficult or sensitive histories? But ultimately it's history that tends to relate to the 400 years in which we were an active British empire.
0: Thank you. And this obviously can be a very emotive and potentially divisive issue. Ed, I'm gonna ask you, do, do you think we have an effective platform for debates around this very important topic?
2: Well, it's become a very heated debate and it's generating uh, more heat than light at the moment, which I think is very unfortunate. You know, I think, um, you know, based on Corinne's definition, uh, contested heritage is a perfectly legitimate area for scholarly examination and debate. Uh, We have a kind of island story, if you like, and it's about um, Britain ruling the waves and and the British empire. And there's a debate about the kind of pluses and minuses of Britain's contribution to the world based on that empire, if you like. And there's a particular narrative that's been prevalent for many years, which is the British empire was a good thing and brought many good things to many of the countries that were part of the empire. But there's more and more awareness that there were some bad things uh, as well, some very bad things. And I think there's nothing wrong with exploring that and debating it in a mature way. And nobody is saying you know that we have to be as it were ashamed of our history uh, that we have to fall on one side or the other the point about history is it's nuanced and also I think that history is a living thing I'm straying very much into Corian's territory here but history is a living thing and every generation is entitled as it were to interpret historical events through the prism of their own uh, current values and morals but that's not to say that you can't understand that people who behaved in a certain way in the 18th century behaved in what was in inverted commas regarded as normal but it doesn't mean that you have to gloss over it uh, or that you have to say oh that was unquestionably a good thing and if you don't think it's a good thing then there's something wrong with you I think uh, it's a nuanced debate and I, I find it a great pity that it's become uh, this sort of heated debate where you're forced to take a side and if you pick the wrong side you're somehow in trouble
1: I I think that's it's, it's music to my ears to hear somebody talking about the importance of having a a calm and and mature debate because really this history is quite often seen using what historians call a balance sheet approach, you know, was empire a good thing or a bad thing? And um, we tend to sort of judge it through the lenses of, of the present if we're not careful. But it's really important not to think about empire in terms of predominantly guilt or shame, because that obscures, as Ed was suggesting, the whole range of and the sort of nuance of empire. I mean, empire was a monumental uh, historical development. It had so many different angles and legacies, both for people of formerly colonised countries and the mass movement of people for, for a start. But also uh, it was very formative of Britain. So it's really helpful to think, well, when we're talking about empire, we're not just talking about the slave trade. We're talking about the East India Company. We're talking about all kinds of subtle Um, effects of empire and the history of ideas we're talking about literary engagement with empire I mean let's think about uh, all the literature that was written during the days of empire you've got novels like The Moonstone one of our classics which is all about a stolen diamond uh, by an East India company servant that ends up in a country house in Yorkshire so there's so much uh, it's integral to our culture and it's so central To some of our heritage sites, not all of them by any means. Um, But it's still well worth considering the full range of stories from Chinese wallpaper to plantation wealth and to enslavement and so on. Um, In subtle and sort of nuanced ways.
2: And I think, I mean, I was going to jump in there again, slightly entering in this territory she's much more of an expert than I am but my understanding is that you know as it were when we talk if we're using this label contested heritage I mean contested heritage was contested at the time there was debates in in England as it were in the 18th century about empire and about the both the triumphs of empire and the crimes of empire and in the Victorian age as well.
1: I think that's a really important point uh, that Ed makes there that it's important to realise that within Britain, there was no unified view of empire, there were strong anti-colonial thinkers, there, was, uh, there were abolitionist thinkers, black abolitionists um, and, and white am- abolitionists working together. So it's really important to understand that Britain didn't think as one ever. Uh, it doesn't now and it didn't then.
0: Well, one of the things I, was, I wanted to mention was that um, there is a perception that certain museums and heritage sites are championing one view of history. Uh, and the fact, well, put it very simply, that British history is bad and to be apologised for. And that's one side of the debate. But it's really encouraging to hear you, as you quite rightly say, the debate is far more nuanced than that. And there are multiple narratives. But do you think it's fair to say that the likes of the National Trust, etc., are just championing one view of history at the moment?
1: I think it's a really interesting objection to raise because for decades the National Trust houses, which have quite strong connections to the British Empire, some of which were genuinely not known about or forgotten, um, they didn't talk about those connections at all. So it was one-sided in the sense that, that for those sites, for example, Basildon Park is a great example. Lazeldon Park was built with the profits of East India Company high office. And that estate, the house was built with with that money. So if we don't talk about that, it seems rather evasive and one-sided to concentrate on its later history at the expense of its absolutely foundational story. And so I think that The idea that something's one sided rather than a corrective to decades of silence is uh, probably a much more accurate way to think about the history of representation of British heritage sites. And I think that it's also important to recognise that, you know, that things like the National Trust reports are associated with what you might call perceived threat, that it's it's unfamiliar and sometimes shocking uh, to, to learn these things. Although there was a survey from Policy Exchange that suggested that 76% of National Trust members really are quite open-minded about the idea of inter- incorporating colonial history into the general history of those sites. But I think that it can come as a shock, partly because our general knowledge about those 400 years of colonialism is not actually that good. And I don't think any government has really addressed that in terms of our, our education. This is why it all is so unfamiliar to us.
0: Well, I just want to pick up on that because there was a survey in the Guardian recently that one in 10 GCC students are studying a module dedicated to empire. Less than 8% learn about Britain's colonisation of Africa. 80% are taught about the Tudors. Ed, you're in government. Why is this?
2: Yeah, well, I studied history at Oxford, so I don't know any history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ability to kind of specialize and narrow down in almost any subject that we study in uh, the English education system is pretty shocking. And that's a whole other debate about how we educate our children. But I think that's the point. I mean, I, I know that Corinne's written her green um, unpleasant land and I hesitate to plug another book therefore on this podcast but I've read Satnam Sangra's Empire Land and I follow his tweets and it's it's interesting that uh, apart from obviously the abuse he gets for daring to present a nuanced uh, picture of empire a lot of people are saying look I had no idea about empire until I read your book and I think it is I mean the point about that book is that I think uh, echoing what Corin was saying earlier the empire is absolutely part of our living culture today in terms of the language we use and, as I said earlier, the sort of story we tell about our country, and yet it's barely studied at school. And uh, there are lots of aspects of empire that do need uh, to be studied and debated and it should be about what the great kind of late motif of English education is which is kind of critical thinking and the ability to examine facts and come up with different interpretations and weigh them against each other. So uh, I think that uh, if this kind of fevered culture war that we're going through ends up with people saying actually we just need to uh, study this perhaps in more detail and perhaps at school that would be a very a very good thing. But I think going back to um, what Corin was saying you know one of the reasons I very much support the work she did and what the National Trust did. I mean it landed at a time when the Black Lives Matter debate was very prominent. And it got caught up in in that kind of politics, if you like. But for me, it's about, uh, you know, Corinne said it was a sort of corrective for the National Trust. It's about embracing people who have a different heritage to, say, someone like me, who's a classic middle class, uh, public school-educated white male, and uh, telling them stories that are relevant to their heritage and will resonate. Uh, with them. And one of the things that drives me mad is when people really get on their high horse about organizations which are by and large relatively traditional, trying to reach out to new audiences. I mean, I remember the bizarre row when the Lake District Tourist Authority uh, asked itself the question why are most of our visitors uh, white, late, middle aged tourists? Is there something we could do that might attract people? From a different demographic and this was regarded as somehow blasphemous. Uh, I don't see that at all.
1: It's such an interesting point that, um, that one of the fascinating things about the National Trust Report was that it flags up for us new research about the African Indian and Chinese presence in the countryside. And this is really, really important information. And a lot of it, a lot of this historical work has just been done quite recently over the last 20 years. So it's also emerged because of new databases that people have access to Um, archives which have been looked at in different ways or opened up, such as the legacies of British slave ownership. And so we have so much more information than we ever had before, that it's a wonderful opportunity to start looking afresh at our history and Although the term rewriting history is often used as an insult, that is what historians do. It's what archaeologists do with totally. Stonehenge, for example. You know, you get some new evidence and in the light of that evidence, you then reappraise the, the history of Stonehenge. You know, it was built, it was first put somewhere else and then it was moved 120 kilometres to, to where it is today. Isn't Why isn't that interesting? Um, why isn't the history of uh, Chinese wallpaper or colonial administration interesting for example so I think it yeah it's um, the culture war is unfortunate in many senses because it stops us having these interesting conversations about our past Um, although they have to be had sensitively it's Uh, only adds to and enriches our knowledge Uh, I mean I did see that the the leader of the um, 56 common sense MPs uh, Sir John Hayes suggested that an historic England report uh, should be shredded the the other day and this is by a really eminent historian of empire Madge Dresser and and Mary Wills and it's a really helpful uh, new sort of Uh, uh, bringing together of all our existing historical knowledge about uh, various heritage sites and buildings, our built heritage. But, um, you know, shredding and book burning and stuff doesn't work very well in a digital age. Um, And it, it is really important, as Satnam Sanghera says, to have that conversation without people writing to him and saying if he doesn't like British history, he should go back to to India, which is uh, just so hurtful. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, it's important to have these conversations and thinking also about some of the things which we have here, I was thinking about the, going back to what Ed was saying about new audiences and so on, but at the National Trust at Clandon Park, for example, it has a, a beautifully carved Maori house Um, called Hinamihi, and it was brought here by the governor of New Zealand and it was paid for with, I don't know, it was 50 pounds or something, was brought around 1892, I think. And uh, some of the ancestors of the the, the descendants of the carver, the original carver, actually came to that site and they said that they could feel the presence of their Maori ancestors. And London's Maori communities now come to that house, and they've adopted it as a meeting house to think about culture in their own heritage. So I think places like that are really, really important and fascinating aspects of our history.
0: Absolutely, and you, you, their Corinne, to. The common sense group something i want to discuss as well so it's yes yeah, made up of 59 mps seven members of the house of lords colleagues of eds um and they're highly critical of what they call quote the woke agenda in fact in a letter to the telegraph at the end of last year they said history must neither be sanitized nor rewritten, as picking what you said there earlier, Karim, to suit snowflake preoccupations. A clique of powerful privileged liberals must not be allowed to rewrite our history in their image, which is obviously quite powerful stuff. They accuse the National Trust of being a, a group of elite bourgeois liberals, and Jonathan Gullis, MP, even referred to the Greenwich Maritime Museum's research into raw, the Royal Navy's link to slavery as left wing ideological nonsense. I mean, this is all quite strong stuff, and again, draws on. That sort of quite divisive debates but uh, what it comes down to I gather is the heritage sector well they believe the heritage sector is giving too much emphasis to colonialism slavery is that are these fair points or are these quite outrageous?
2: Well I find it completely bizarre I mean I know John Hayes and um, <laughs> John Hayes does not shy away from a dust-up and, an, and an argument but I think that his uh, approach and tone is is very, very bizarre, but it's a very easy way to get headlines. And again, it's a very uh, lazy way to have a debate, but it's very easy to write a newspaper article that somehow uh, there's this terrible liberal uh, woke agenda. And I just think it's complete and utter nonsense. And what I find odd is that, you know, the kind of traditional institutions that some conservatives seek to take on strike me as very odd enemies to have. I mean, I don't want to put words into the mouth of the National Trust, but I suspect you'd be hard pushed to find a more small C conservative institution. (laughs) And it's a lot more popular than the Conservative Party. It's got 5 million members. (laughs) And uh, you'd be hard pushed to find a more staid and conservative small C institution than uh, the Royal Museum's Greenwich uh, in their uh, classic neoclassical buildings, celebrating Britain's naval and maritime heritage and I think that to explore in an academic thoughtful way our links uh, links with colonialism and our colonial past does not in any way undermine if that's what your argument is the British way of life and I can't help thinking about sort of Don Quixote tilting at windmills I mean uh, the idea that the kind of institutions of the British state are going to collapse uh, <laughs> Uh, We happen to make the points, uh, some of the points that Corinne's been making, for example, about some of the links uh, between houses and uh, the fortunes they were built on is just uh, ludicrous. But what it will do, I think, which I very much positively support, is to reach out to new communities in our country who feel excluded from our history. They either feel excluded because the stories, the, the bad stories aren't being told and their perspective is not being balanced. Or because, as Corinne hinted earlier, uh, many of these communities have been part of our history for for many, many years. They didn't just arrive in the 1950s. They've been part of our history for hundreds of years. And that, to to the people I know, is a a wonderful thing for them to to feel that they are now part of the narrative. So uh, I completely agree. I thought Corinne put it brilliantly well about the rewriting of history. Every generation rewrites history based on uh, new fact, you know, I did, I happen to study 18th century history and 18th century political history is rewritten by every generation of historians because they want to put their mark on it. Um, so I just, I don't know whether the common sense group, I haven't heard from them for a while, maybe they've run out of steam, maybe they've realised that their arguments have hit a brick wall, but it, 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 they're bizarre fights to pick, I have to say, but they get easy headlines.
1: Corin, I know yeah. that you
0: personally have also been on the receiving end of this for your work with the National Trust.
1: Oh, very much so. And um, at one point, I feared that there was a deliberate attempt to discredit me and my team of historians. Um, it, it felt a bit like a juggernaut coming towards me on the pavement, with all these um, very influential columnists writing uh, that that we were politically biased academics, and and even um, attributing things to us that we most certainly hadn't said. So (laughs) the Daily Mail at one point reported that I said gardening was racist because I've got a chapter in my book about botany and empire and the relationship between plants and the movement of people and commercial trading networks. So, and I, I can't tell you how much hate mail and how horrible that hate mail was and the threats that I got because of that. So I think people are playing with fire if they want to stir up um, people's anxieties at a time when we have a pandemic and there's so much grief and uncertainty in all of our lives that it's just not really a very responsible thing to do. But I think ultimately to get back to the idea of woke, I mean, first of all, it, it's, it's got quite a painful history, that word, because really it's um, it's connected to the civil rights movement and the idea of being awake to injustice. Um, but it's become a term of abuse in a kind of rather strange twist of fate, um, and I think that it's the kind of thing that stops us from listening to one another. I mean, as as Ed's demonstrated so well just now, we've within the uh, Conservative Party there is a, a wide range of views about history and approaches to history culture it, it's a very broad church so that I don't think the, fi- the 59 MPs can be considered to be representative of the Conservative Party I'm sure but um, I do think that using terms like woke so woke professor are the two words that go in front of my name um, you know, in the 138 or so articles um, deriding my work, that, that really stop ideas getting a fair he- hearing and they stop us from having engaging conversations with each other about the past.
0: Yes, hear, hear. I just want to shift, change tact a little bit and talk specifically actually about UK government policy. The, the main focus of their agenda at the moment is this retain and explain policy. Ed, could you tell us a bit more about that, please?
2: Well, I think uh, if retain and explain means what I think it means, then I'm sort of potentially quite supportive. You know, I'm not a person who wants to see people uh, tearing down statues, uh, particularly. I mean, I, I can see why people might want the statues moved or indeed, Put in a museum as opposed to being put on a plinth but i don't support sort of direct action to tear it down and chuck it in the river necessarily and i can understand why you might want to debate uh, a, a particular artifact or statue staying in place but having in effect agreeing i suspect i don't want to put words in her mouth but agreeing with corin's point which is interpreting it in a new way bringing into play facts that have hitherto not been in front of the public and that is i understand effectively what the national trust research is doing you're not going to tear down a house because it was built with uh the proceeds of empire but you are going to explain how the person who built that house could afford to do so so in that sense retain and explain is a perfectly benign policy and there will be individual debates about certain objects i mean that there was there is the current examination of the place of the Cecil Rhodes statue in Oriel College, Oxford, which may result in it being moved. And part part of the reason it may be moved is because there are certain people who do feel genuinely, I don't think they're putting it on, uh, genuinely offended that he towers over the main quad at uh, Oriel. And uh, there there have been statues moved in the City of London, which have caused uh, a bit of a, a row. So I'm not saying that things shouldn't be moved, but broadly speaking, retain and explain is a, a relatively benign policy what worries me most about the direction of travel of the government is that you know i was the culture minister for six years and um without wishing to sound like i'm sort of dodging the issue you know one, one of the uh one of the principles as it were of our cultural policy has always been that the institutions themselves should make be making these decisions and that government ministers shouldn't interfere jenny lee who was the uh first culture minister appointed by harold wilson i I can never remember whether it's a or not, but in theory, she summed up government policy as money and silence. You write the checks for the museums and the arts organisations and then you stick well out of it. Uh, so you don't. And that's helpful in some ways, because it means potentially you don't have to make a decision on whether you give back the Elgin Marbles. That's a decision for the trustees of the British Museum. So I was a bit concerned uh, when Oliver Dowden, who is a friend of mine, who's a man I admire, but uh, summoned the heritage organisations to a sort of uh, debate. But if it was a genuine debate about the current cultural debate, then that's all well and good. But it's a dangerous road to go down if you start trying to tell institutions what they should and shouldn't do with their collections. I have views on what they should and shouldn't do with their collections, which perhaps I can air now, but I certainly would try to avoid airing in public when I was the culture minister. Well, there
0: is this arm-length principle, which I know you support, yeah. and um, but just to come back to the, the, the specific government policy, I understand there are also new laws being put in place to safeguard historic monuments across England specifically, um, but could it be said that conserving these public monuments is also to conserve their values? I mean, the, the main one that comes as pertinent, it's in the forefront of my mind, is with Edward Colston in, Bris- in Bristol. I mean, yes he was a slave trader, but also I gather his statue was erected to celebrate his philanthropy. So it's, it's very sort of complex debate when it comes to each monument.
2: Yeah, and I'll be interested to hear Corey's views because again, you know, I did not, I'm not serving on the Cecil Rhodes committee. There's a committee of the great and the good that's been put together to decide uh, the fate of Cecil Rhodes. And in a sense, it's a, it's a terrible job to have because whatever decision you make, you're going to annoy someone pretty intensely, and that goes- Isn't that Colston. like being a government government minister? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, which is why I'm no longer a government minister. Without <laughs> the Colston statue, in, in a nutshell, there are plenty of people who are glad to see it dunked in the river. There are plenty of people who might think it's great that it's been taken down, but wouldn't have wanted it taken down in that way. Uh, and there are some who think, well, actually, it's a nuanced story, Colston's place in the history of Bristol. His statue should stay, but the context should be explained, and uh, all those to a certain extent. Uh, you know, that's that's the kind of spectrum of the uh, of the debate, and it's a difficult to come down on a conclusion that's right, except to say that you know I haven't think criminal damage is wrong, but apart from that.
0: Well, Corin, the the National Trust has announced plans to also keep its most as controversial objects to avoid shutting down that debate. But can a tiny plaque? with a bit more historical context really outweigh a huge monument?
1: I think that's an interesting question and the retain and explain policy is quite an interesting one. I mean, uh, the explain part of it intrigues me and um, I would applaud it. What a great idea. Let's explain. That's what the National Trust was trying to do in producing its report. And it. uh, so we, we I mean, the explain policy is a kind of progress from the days of the early reception of that national report last year. Um, explaining is a very good idea. I know of historians of empire who are very much in favor of keeping statues in place. There's a range of views amongst historians about this. Partly because uh, there's, there's an historian of, of um, the black presence in, in Liverpool who loves to give walking tours around these statues he said it's the most brilliant history lesson in colonial british history that you could get but i think the the issue of explaining is a complex one because of course colston you know we know that there was a long long dialogue about colston over many many years by people who didn't want him honored and it, and the question for those people was well who do we choose to honor and interestingly who have our predecessors chosen to honor and as Ed says these figures and you yourself have said that these figures have very complex histories Um, but but it is also true that there was a plaque put up to explain better and in more rounded terms the fuller history of colston and uh, i know the historian in a local primary school that was involved with that And there was an almighty row just about the explanation plaque and there there was a kind of tussle over how much was said about the slavery voyages which Colston is associated with. I mean, if you look on um, slavevoyages.org, you can see the kind of human story that's missing from that with, um, you know, the, the lists of of the numbers of men, women and children who were effectively trafficked across the ocean. But let's not forget that that was legal at that time. It wasn't illegal activity until uh, after the, the formal abolition of the slave trade. Um, but it was also a deeply traumatic and ugly part of our history. So I think it's a complicated, I think we forget sometimes that only one statue has actually been torn down. (laughs) And um, we can make out that, you know, that there's this uh, really, sometimes I wonder if what the real threat is actually a kind of a rash of historical inquiry sweeping the country <laughs> that that um, is perceived to be more threatening than, than the pulling down of, of statues. But I, I do think that there is important evidence of our colonial past in our street names. And there is an argument that you can destroy that evidence if you go around renaming streets, then you forget uh, you know, when in in three generations' time, if if a street is called Paradise Street instead of the name of a slave trader, um, might people forget about that history? But at the same time, of course, it's a complex debate because we don't want to necessarily honour, in the same way uh, with our modern sensibility, the people who our predecessors honoured. So it's it's complicated.
0: So, is the difference between honouring and reminding?
1: Yes. Absolutely. And, and of um, course, statues are all about honouring, aren't they? And, um, you know, they, they, they are, you know, who, who wouldn't want a, a statue in a prominent place in a city to show their contribution to that city?
0: Well, I understand that the British Museum's approach with Sir Hans Sloane, uh, with his bust, they've actually continued to put it in a very prominent location. Of course, they mentioned he beque- bequeathed his huge collection, which was the foundation of really, the British Museum, British Library, National History Museum, et cetera, but also mentioned his connection to the slave trade and tried to provide the full context. They don't say that he also invented hot chocolate, but that's that's by the by. And also, I gather that, say, with the National Trust, there's uh, the collections that depict black people in ways that are stereotypical or objectified black bodies are being removed. So there are some elements which are being removed for those particular reasons which obviously is very important
1: it's difficult isn't it because on on the one hand you've got uh, all kinds of fairly insignificant say porcelain figures which depict people of color in really demeaning ways in in lots of uh, country houses not just national trust houses so those don't seem to be particularly Um, an issue removing those they're just bits of porcelain behind cabinets and so on but with the with the paintings there are around 300 paintings depicting mostly children of colour who were brought to Britain I mean I think we think that that um, enslaved people were somewhere else off stage but actually there were there are around 300 of these paintings depicting a African children, sometimes Indian children, looking up adoringly at the main white kind of uh, sitter for that portrait. And I think it's a question of how have we looked at those paintings? Um, Again, it provides evidence of that rural black presence, which is very important to remember. But it's also the fact that art historians have predominantly focused, well, almost exclusively focused on the white figure in the painting and not investigated who the black sitter in the painting is. And so lots of there are lots of art historians now who are interested in asking, well, who were these? Who were these people? Um, Where were they buried? Is there a, a record in the local Uh, uh, parish records and I think that's a fascinating process and lots of black history groups have been doing fantastic work going and looking at the parish records and finding out well yeah that's probably the child that was baptised there would be about the same age and about the same time as that painting it might be that child and then discovering for example in Warwickshire a whole load of other black presences connected with other country houses, it was a kind of network. And why um, we wouldn't want to open up the the black histories of of rural Warwickshire uh, is is a puzzle to me. Um, I think it's absolutely fascinating and something well worth exploring. So sometimes these artistic objects, sometimes they're they're demeaning and need reinterpreting in in a sensitive and humane way. Um, honoring the the people who are being done violence to in those images, uh, or demeaned, or put at the edge of the painting, and so on. Um, but at the same time, it's a great way of opening up that history to to visitors because it's it's connected to those larger histories.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm just going to come back Ed, to your point. We were talking earlier about uh, the arm length arm's length principle um which i know you're a supporter of and you mentioned earlier about this essentially a curatorial independence now i gather that these regular meetings with dcms are now called accountability meetings um in short what are the dangers of ministers getting involved in these curatorial decisions
2: well i just think uh you know, my feeling is be careful what you wish for. I mean, Oliver Dowden has g- gave an interview at the, at the weekend in which he said, you know, the Elgin Marbles shouldn't go back because you're you pull at a thread and where do, where does the unraveling end? At what point do you stop kind of sending everything back, as it were? Um, but you're he's now immediately part of that debate. And uh, if i had been, I mean, I happen to I've sort of changed my views slightly on the Elgin Marbles. I think they probably should be returned to Greece. They're clearly an essential part of their heritage and Torrey mentioned Stonehenge earlier and I always kind of make the point if we'd been invaded and some had carved it off Stonehenge in the 19th century having bought it off the occupying army uh what would the British be thinking now we'd probably be saying can we have Stonehenge back <laughs> um so I think but the the point is I suppose this will sound deeply cynical but I'm just making the point to make the point, as it were, which is, you know, as as culture minister, I would quite happily have said, well, that's a decision of the trustees of the British Museum. So if you start getting involved in that debate, you are also uh, starting to tug at the thread where you can legitimately be asked about any object in any museum, about what your view is, about whether or not it should be uh, returned. And at that point, you've crossed the line. I think the point about accountability to taxpayers as well is uh, has sort of problematic element I mean obviously museums are accountable to taxpayers they get taxpayers money and they're audited by the DCMS to make sure that the money is not being spent on holidays in uh, Rio de Janeiro so uh, yeah, we want to make sure there's no the kind of broad or, or dodgy spending but in terms of uh, accountability to taxpayer what taxpayer are you talking about you know there are plenty of people who do support indeed as policy exchange found when it commissioned a survey, which I presume it hoped that 100% of the National Trust members would say that what was happening was an absolute disgrace, and discovered that actually, surprise, surprise 76% of National Trust members are like members of the British public, which is that they're open minded and curious. Um, so, account you know, which taxpayer are you accountable to there are plenty of taxpayers who support uh, the curatorial decisions of uh, museums and uh, Yes, museums should be accountable to them, but uh, I don't think it's necessary the the wisest decisions for ministers to say that they are the spokesman for the taxpayer.
0: But if um, we we talked earlier about that uh, objectivity and and also having that one narrative, if museums and heritage sector aren't accountable to DCMS about the narrative which they put forward, who are they accountable to? Who can monitor that effectively?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question because you can obviously take extreme hypothetical examples if you were so minded. Um, I think that you know, I think you know, to a certain extent you are you are accountable in in many different ways. You're, you're accountable in, in a straightforward financial way. There's no one would worries about that. It's quite right that you know the British Museum's accounts should be audited, and uh, no one should worry about DCMS potentially uh, holding a museum or a an arts organization to account if it thinks it's spending money badly or it's it's in financial trouble the arts council has done that with some major arts organizations in the past that's not part of this uh debate but are you going to say that you should choose uh the repertoire as a minister? you should choose the repertoire of the royal opera house no of course you're not are you going to say that you should Uh, have a tour of the British Museum every year and say no I don't think that object should be there it should be here or why are you displaying this object no you you shouldn't be doing that that's a job for the trustees and the director of the museum and they are accountable to their public and to a certain extent the public are entitled to vote with their feet if if a museum goes off the deep end in some way I can't particularly imagine at the moment, uh, the public would no doubt vote with their feet and just not turn up Uh, to see stuff or they would uh, write in or email to say uh, what their concerns are and a lot of museums tend to have passionate groups of friends who make their feelings known if they think a museum director is going in a particular direction uh, they're not particularly supportive of but it's the same with all our public institutions and, and which is why they work you know sometimes they do enrage us with their decisions I'm not saying that I'm immune to occasionally being enraged by the BBC but I don't want to direct the bbc's programming and i think it's a very important principle the bbc is funded by a license fee that keeps it independent from political decisions and of course every politician has to think if uh, you know they may well think it's fine because i'm in charge and i know what i'm doing well you're not going to be in charge forever and uh, some other government might come in that you profoundly disagree with and you've found that you've laid the foundations for them to start directing cultural institutions to start reflecting their agenda rather than your agenda
0: and essentially what you say, also, as talking about tugging that thread, once you start, it does unravel a huge amount of defeats and elements. I mean, one of the things, in which the so-called common sense group did was they wrote to the culture secretary requesting that the National Trust's funding application to certain public institutions is, is, is removed. And that's, isn't that quite scary that actually if um, museums in the heritage sector aren't necessarily following a certain line histor- in a historical way, then their funding might be threatened.
1: Yes, I, I think intellectual freedom, the freedom to research your own properties is really, really important. And there was some, I would say, unattributed quote in the Daily Te- Telegraph to say that you know anything I did again would not be funded. <laughs> um, and I, I found that alarming. I I just thought it's it's not the it's not the democratic Britain that I, I recognise and as an academic, it's absolutely vital that if that's if if we have specialisms in particular areas, including sensitive histories, that there should be the freedom to pursue our own expertise, uh, you know, to, to, to use our own expertise to pursue particular research. So yeah, um, that that is worrying. I, I, I think it's it's important to ask who is best qualified to make decisions about allocation of research funding. You know, we have a good peer review system where your academic peers no doubt of all persuasions and opinions, decide on the quality and the calibre of the research and the researcher, and they decide accordingly whether to, to fund that research, it's, if it's a good application or if it's a shoddy application. They, they might decide to turn it down on that basis, but not on a political basis and not because of political pressure.
2: I think it's, uh, you know, you can't, you know, no one is saying that institutions won't make the wrong decisions. Uh, and won't make decisions to fund projects that you know in my opinion for the sake of argument shouldn't be funded but but the principle is about independence and choice and uh, I remember I mean this is slightly weird anecdote perhaps but I remember in the late 80s I mean I've always been a Tory by the way (laughs) (laughs) we won't hold that against you (laughs) and uh, I remember in the late 80s you know education was a pretty contested field and I remember there was a teacher I think it may have been in Bristol who grandly, this was at a time when the Conservatives were introducing school choice and so on, uh, grandly announced that she wouldn't teach Shakespeare in her schools because it was sort of terrible, i presume, to sort of, you know, whatever phrases of, of the moment you want to pull out. And I remember actually quietly supporting her because although I think Shakespeare should be taught in schools, I thought if we as Conservatives believe in school choice, then parents can vote with their feet and if you've got some teacher who, in my view, was making the wrong decision not to teach Shakespeare, that's a decision for the teacher. And it's a decision for the parents to say, well, actually, I'm not going to send my kids to your school if you're not going to teach Shakespeare. That's outrageous. Um, and we, we have now a, a national curriculum, which itself has become a sort of, you know, battleground often for what subjects are being taught and what subjects aren't. And so, on. so in a very convoluted and slightly complicated way, <laughs> I'm saying that the independence of institutions is paramount. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to, that one can claim that institutions will always make the right decision. They won't. They will make the wrong decisions. You've got to decide whether it's your role to kind of interfere at every drop of the hat or not. And my view is you'd be better off not interfering and allowing those institutions to make decisions with which you profoundly disagree, because that is an important point of principle.
0: Mm. And as you say, Colin, there's also peer reviews, there is that Um, level of critique within museums and heritage sector which is which is vital um,
1: yes um, i mean all all um, like i'd say so all organizations institutions and research funding bodies they all have a good healthy system of checks and balances and i think you have to respect that
0: so it seems clear that whether we like it or not there is a if you like a culture war and I mean, the Common Sense Group again says they are they are ready for this culture war, and we are confident that our policy agenda will help win it. So, where where are the key battlegrounds at the moment, and how do you see this playing out?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that some of us don't want to fight a culture war. We're mm. not interested in fighting, and I think that it, we need to get rid of all these metaphors of <laughs> of war and violence because actually, um, why not? Why not? Um, stop weaponizing history and just think about having conversations across all kinds of divides, cultural divides, generational divides. I, you know, I've said this a few times in, in my own defense when I felt so under attack and um, that enriching to know more and to understand more about the world. More knowledge is good, less knowledge is bad. So let's have less shredding (laughs) and threats of shredding documents and more invitations to to explore further those histories. And, you know, when you research things, you don't always find out what you want to find out. You don't always find out the thing which favours your own personal opinions. You sometimes find out things which are quite surprising and uncomfortable for you yourself as a researcher so I think that that's clearly a better way to move forward together in also understanding for example under things like the connection between uh, rural poverty rural industry and empire it's really interesting to to understand how copper and the copper industry in in Cornwall then relates to the history of slave trading in in West Africa, for example, or with the the example of North Wales, the fact that the whole infrastructure was funded by Jamaican uh, sugar plantations worked by enslaved people. But at the same time, that slate quarry, which was paid for with that money was also the site of one of Britain's most bitter industrial disputes. So exploring the overlaps between a variety of repressed histories would be a a very positive thing in my view and actually potentially not divisive at all but rather unifying as people see how their histories intersect.
2: I think that um, it's a really, uh, you know, what is the culture war and and where is it going is an interesting question. So let me just briefly sort of put a, a, a conservative perspective, a big C conservative perspective to a certain extent, which is that there is a belief on the right that the left is engaged in an agenda to kind of seize uh control of public institutions and they do it by getting their people in to run them dominating the universities dominating the bbc and therefore pushing forward a a left-wing narrative now there may be a kernel of truth in one point which where i could kind of meet the right uh not uh you know in in a sort of space uh which is say take environmental policy for example take take the green agenda On the one hand, I obviously believe in climate change and believe we should do everything we can to mitigate against it and so on. But there is an element of truth if you say that there are some climate activists who use the climate agenda to attack capitalism. They're not actually interested in saving the planet. They're interested in destroying business because they don't like business. And you have to, to a certain extent, guard against that. So there's that element, I think, if you want to kind of get inside the head of the common sense group that believes that the public agenda, which is just to reinterpret history and put things in perspective, lying behind that is a hidden agenda to, you know, seize control and push forward a socialist agenda. That would be the kind of case for the defence. My own view is that, um, you know, I, as I say, I fully support what the National Trust has done. I think that we shouldn't be afraid to examine our own history and put it in perspective. Uh, we should be nervous about breaching uh, things like the arm's length principle and trying to dictate uh, what the cultural narrative should be and what it shouldn't, partly for reasons of self-preservation because other people will be in power at some point in the future who we wouldn't want to be directing the uh, uh, cultural agenda. But change is often difficult and people a lot of people are small c uh, conservative, but for me, what the culture war is about is about giving a voice to people who haven't had a voice uh, before, whose stories and history haven't had a voice to ensure that everyone in our country feels that they are part of our society. And the kind of last culture war that was fought, interestingly, the Conservatives were on the right side, which was gay marriage. And uh, I remember as an MP, the biggest postbag I ever got uh, where people actually bothered to write letters uh, as opposed to downloading the templates, which has become the form of how you write to your MP these days, w- were people in my constituency opposed to gay marriage. I've got about 500 emails and letters. People really opposed wow. to it. And, um, but the Tory government stuck to its guns. and the, the coalition government. The coalition government. And the sky did not fall in. And a lot of people have become very happy as a result. And that to me is the sort of direction of travel of the sort of work that the National Trust is doing, that people now feel their stories are being told or their ancestors stories are being told. They feel engaged in a way they weren't engaged before. And I think the result will in the end end up being extremely positive all round.
0: I think um, we've, we've all alluded to Satham's uh, book recently and actually I'm going to ask you in a second for recommended readings to finish us off but I think he basically says that to understand our complicated multicultural society we need to learn more about British Empire and just learn more more generally and that's something we should, we should be encouraged but yes as we come to the end I would love to have more reading recommendations before our listeners and for me really it would be lovely so have you got any other thoughts I see Ed's Scouring his bookshelf. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Desperate attempt um, to sound learned.
1: I, I, I've got a few. I, I have a few suggestions. Um Thank you. There, there are some older books. Uh, there's one by Rosina Visram called "Ayers, Laskas and Princes, which was written in the 1980s about the, the Indian and South Asian presence in Britain over a long historical period. And also David Olashoga's Black and British a Forgotten History is a great account of the African connections.
0: Thank you. And you can recommend Corinne's book as well, of course.
2: I would recommend Corinne's book, which I haven't read, but I'm sure is absolutely brilliant. And I have read um, <laughs> Satnam's book. Uh, but I um, no, the book on my desk is David Hockney. Aha. Uh-huh. Spring Cannot Be Canceled, David Hockney with Martin Gayford. But, uh, and I'm currently reading Mick Heron, who is a novelist, who is um, the new John Le Carre, as it were, uh, whose hero, Jackson Lamb, is about the most politically incorrect hero you could possibly <laughs> So just to correct the narrative that I'm not part of the Hidden Woke Agenda. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well thank you so much for those uh, recommendations and well for discussing and exploring such an important topic there's so much more we could we could discuss and explore here but um we'll leave it there thank you corin and ed and many thanks indeed for your time and insights today thank you also to fiona livingston and our sound editor merlin thomas our theme music is composed by robert Cochran. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out all the other episodes from The Culture Bar where you can hear from MPs, professors, a former professional football referee, a canon of a cathedral, festival managers, museum directors, and more. To get all that, please subscribe. See you next time.